The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Friday, May 6th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions, It's the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. In New Hampshire, as protesters upset with the possibility, probability, of the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade gathered around the State House, one member of the New Hampshire House of Representatives yelled back, this was Sue DeLemus. Sue DeLemus confessing to and accusing constituents of murder. But Sue DeLemus, Sue DeLemus, where did I know that name from? Sure, as a dedicated podcaster who covers politics, I make it my point to have some brief biographical knowledge of all 400 members of the lower house of the New Hampshire General Court. That's what they call their state legislature up there in the Granite State. But then it hit me. The year 2015, the Trump candidacy was underway, but perhaps not adequately accounted for. I say that because CNN had run one of those televised focus groups in December, and it featured an impassioned participant. I shall now play two full minutes of the December 15th gist show, I believe it was December 10th, and we start the clip you're going to hear from that CNN focus group, Sue DeLemus. As far as the truth goes, We've got people in, in positions of power who I know for a fact are liars, liars. I watch the TV, my, my president comes on the TV and he lies to me. I know he's lying. He lies all the time. Yeah, so she doesn't like liars. Okay. Seems to be maybe a little more going on there than a cool assessment of the available data. The woman, we should note the visual there, she was wide-eyed. She was pointing her fingers, kind of gesturing pretty aggressively. She continued on. I don't believe any one of them, not one. I believe Donald. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm telling you, he says what I'm thinking. Exactly. Never been involved in politics, never had an interest in any of it. So the first time I heard her saying never been involved, never had an interest, I thought she was talking about herself. But it turns out she must have been talking about Trump, that Trump wasn't interested in politics before that. Because Susan DeLamis is interested in politics. Susan DeLamis is a tea partier. Susan DeLamis is a Obama birther. And you know all this because Susan DeLamis is a two-term member of the New Hampshire House of Representatives. She has petitioned the New Hampshire Attorney General to remove Barack Obama's name from the ballot because he's not naturally born. And I went to her Facebook page. Here are the last three posts. Most recent post, anti-Salalinsky thing. Then this post, abortion equals murder. Abortion provider equals accessory to murder. Taxpayers money to provide funding for abortion equal accessory to murder. And then the next post had this statement from her. I murdered my baby in 1988 with the help and encouragement of Planned Parenthood. It was the worst and most selfish decision I ever made. With the help of Planned Parenthood, I am a murderer who will be guilty of murder for the rest of my life. So this was who CNN got to be in the focus group of regular Americans talking about why they like Trump. He's speaking our minds, our minds, when the pundits and the experts and all the people who are supposed to be in the know and know all this stuff, and they're so great, I know some of them, maybe not all, but some of them are lying to me. I think we have just proved that Susan DeLemus is the most consistent on-message politician in America. Though her views have been uninterrupted, her tenure in the statehouse has not. 
She lost re-election in 2016, perhaps because family matters intervened, specifically the matters concerning her husband, Jerry. DeLamis was convicted for inciting and helping lead an armed insurrection in Nevada in April 2014 to stop a roundup of cows from public land near the Bundy Ranch. Behind bars since the FBI raided his Rochester home in 2016. WMUR reporting. Now, Jerry has never held public office, but he was featured right there next to Susan as a concerned citizen in that 2015 CNN focus group. No disclosure of her status as a state rep or his arrest. Sue DeLimas, you'll be happy to hear, was returned to the state house by constituents in 2020 who overlooked her confession. On the show today, it's an end twin tig. Faith will be rewarded, lobsters will be awarded. But first, Afghanistan, land of an insurgent band of religious fighters who resort to brutal techniques to inflict damages on the Kabul government to gain adherence among the far flung citizenry. No, I'm not describing what Afghanistan was like before the Taliban cast out the Americans. I'm talking about what it's been like since the Taliban took power. They have their own insurgents on their hands, a recognizable group, ISIS, in this case, ISIS-K. They've been inflicting damage and killing civilians. And for what? Well, Michael Kugelman is here to explain that. He's the South Asia Senior Associate at the Wilson Center. He's a writer for foreign policy of the weekly South Asia Brief. And he joins us next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. ISIS-K, it's not just the single-serve, less environmentally friendly form of ISIS. No, operating in Afghanistan, the K is for Khorasan, the Khorasan province, which this ISIS affiliate calls that area, which includes much of Afghanistan. 
They're behind the Kabul airport bombing that killed 13 U.S. troops, and a recent string of ISIS-K attacks have left almost 100 people dead in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Joining me now is Michael Kugelman, the deputy director of the Asia Program and senior associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center. Thanks for coming on The Gist. Thanks. Great to be here with you. Yeah. So I want to go over, I have this checklist, religious, ideological, military, and regional. So let's start with the religious. Is there, I know that ISIS-K are Sunni influenced. I know that the Taliban are, but it gets much more complicated than that. In fact, from what I've read, they're not just Sunni. There are many varieties of Sunni. Each believes in a return of the caliphate. So what's the religious differences if there is one, just how the caliphate would operate on an operational level or what? Right. So, I mean, uh, ISIS, uh, broadly speaking, uh, is uh, an adherent of the Salafist school of Sunni Islam, which is really seen as the most uh, retrogressive, uh, the most hardline, the most maximalist. And so, in fact, ISIS rejects any adherent of any type of um, uh, component of, of Islam other than Salafism. And of course, it rejects those that are not Muslims on the whole. Um, but this is one of the many reasons why ISIS uh, acts in such incredibly violent and horrific ways, that it uh, is you know, influenced by you know, the most um, maximalist, uh, nasty interpretations of this Salafist brand um, of, of Islam. And who are the Taliban or what do they believe in? Well, I mean, the Taliban, like most uh, militant uh, terrorist organizations in Afghanistan and the broader region, adhere to the Diobandi uh, school of Sunni Islam. And so, you know, this is one one of the many reasons why the Taliban and ISIS are rivals. There are many non-religious reasons as well. But if you look at the issue of sect, uh, indeed, the Taliban and al-Qaeda, for that matter, and many of the, as I said, many of the other terror groups in the region, they they embraced uh, Diobandiism, but uh, ISIS rejects Diobandiism. I never thought the Taliban could be cast as the moderate in any conflict, but I guess it's, it, it, does that apply here? Yeah, unfortunately it does. And particularly if you look at the tactics uh, used by ISIS, you know, ISIS, as you know, I mean, from their experiences in the Middle East and Syria and Iraq and, and more recently in Afghanistan, you know, they routinely carry out beheadings and, and the most nasty types of, of killings. The Taliban has done its share of beheadings as well. But in recent, in more recent years, especially since the Taliban became an insurgency fighting uh, NATO forces and the Afghan military, you know, it had been mainly targeting uh, military, Afghan military forces, NATO forces, uh, and was not going around engaging in, uh, in beheadings every day. But for ISIS, it's completely indiscriminate in terms of its targeting. And so, yeah, unfortunately, ISIS does make the Taliban look moderate by comparison. I'm not sure that the Taliban is expansionist, and ISIS certainly is. Yeah, and that's another important distinction between ISIS and, and the Taliban. I mean, the Taliban has done horrible things. It's committed horrific acts of violence for many years. But all of those acts of violence have been carried out in Afghanistan. The Taliban has never carried out an attack outside of Afghanistan. It does have linkages to international terror groups like al-Qaeda. Uh, and it also has, um, has ties to other countries, including Pakistan, where its leaders had sanctuary for, for the last few decades until the war ended. Uh, but otherwise, it doesn't have an international focus, whereas, of course, ISIS uh, you know, it's it's all about trying to establish this global caliphate that goes far beyond areas where it has typically had a presence, whether you're talking about the Middle East or Afghanistan. So that's a major distinction, a major difference between ISIS and the Taliban. 
let's talk about how powerful ISIS-K is. Uh, They're inflicting some damage. It's maybe not that hard, especially in a fractured state like Afghanistan, to target some civilians and kill many dozens. But, you know, how afraid of them should the Taliban be? Yeah, so it's it's interesting how the power and the threat um, of ISIS has evolved over the years. You know, we talk frequently about the horrible attack that ISIS carried out outside the, the Kabul airport during that chaotic uh, last few moments of the withdrawal in August of last year. But ISIS has actually had a formal presence in Afghanistan since 2015, when it was formally announced by the central ISIS organization. And uh, for a period of years between 2015, 2021, it carried out attacks on a fairly consistent level. It was not nearly as potent and deadly as the Taliban, but it was there. And what what really is striking about uh, ISIS, what I find striking about ISIS in Afghanistan over the years is it, it was hit hard repeated, repeatedly by NATO airstrikes, by Afghan military operations and by Taliban ground operations against ISIS. All of these all of these entities were targeting ISIS and yet it survived. And you know, most famously, you may recall several several years ago the US military used the largest um uh, the largest bomb uh, in its repertoire that's not a nuclear weapon. It's called the mother of all bombs. It was used to target yeah. an ISIS hideout in eastern Afghanistan. It probably killed a bunch of ISIS fighters, but it didn't make the group go away. And then indeed, it, the world really woke up to the threat posed by the group in that August airport attack. But what, what I feel about ISIS since the Taliban takeover in the U.S. Uh, departure is that it's gotten even uh, even stronger. Uh, you know, there was there were prison breaks that took place in Afghanistan during that those chaotic moments in the August that freed a lot of ISIS fighters. So their their manpower was replenished. Um, also, with the with the Afghan military having collapsed and with NATO forces having left, ISIS is no longer getting hit by air power. So that gives them space to regroup and recalibrate and so on. Finally, uh, you know, given the current environment in Afghanistan, as you know, there's a horrible humanitarian and economic crisis. That is providing the space, I think, for new radicalizations um, of people that are so fed up with how things are. They're angry with the Taliban for not being able to ease the situation. That has allowed ISIS to have more recruitment possibilities. So I think on many levels, they're getting stronger and they're emboldened by the fact that the Taliban, which is a rival, is in power and they want to make the Taliban look bad. They want to make they want to deliver this message that the Taliban is unable to protect the Afghan people. And then the Taliban's message that it's restored peace to Afghanistan is not true. So the Taliban was potent enough to inflict losses on an occupier, the United States, that the occupier found unacceptable. I mean, there was probably something like a hundred to one ratio, maybe more, maybe a couple hundred to one ratio of what acceptable losses were defined by each side. You know, the Taliban would sacrifice 100 or 200 men uh, in the blink of an eye before the United States would even accept one or two losses. So that laid a groundwork for if there could be a somewhat effective strikes against this occupier, maybe the occupier would leave. And that was the case. So there are two questions that arise from this. Let's look at ISIS against the Taliban now. Is the Taliban powerful enough to suppress these new insurrectionists? What is their, each side's calibration of the acceptable number of losses? It seems to me a lot different from what the United States definition of that was. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, you look at the the Taliban, when the Taliban was an insurgency, it had anywhere from 60 to 80,000 active fighters at any one time. And indeed, they would lose fighters all the time on the battlefield, and they would just replenish them because they had very strong recruitment efforts. And of course, uh, at the height of 
the U.S. troop surge, you had more than 100,000 troops, more than 150,000 if you include other NATO countries. So the numbers were always in the favor of the U.S. and the NATO forces. But indeed, the Taliban sustained many losses, but that was okay because they just replenished them. It was so different. Now, looking at the Taliban versus ISIS, you know, ISIS has somewhere between four to five to 6,000 fighters. It's not a huge number. Uh, the Taliban, of course, continues to have large numbers of, of, of fighters and operatives. It's in control of the government now, so that gives it even, even more clout. But the Taliban is at many disadvantages that it was not at when it was, when it was just an insurgency. When it was an insurgency, it fought ISIS on the battlefield, as I had mentioned before, and did quite well, uh, as, I, as I understand it. Um, and it was able to help deprive ISIS of holding on to some of the territory it had seized, mainly in eastern Afghanistan. And as a result today, ISIS doesn't really hold any territory in Afghanistan, or very little. Now that the, the, the Taliban is in power, though, obviously it's very different. It's had to transition from becoming an insurgency to being the source of governance. So it's overwhelmed. It's in over its head with all of these terrible challenges that it's dealing with, such as the economic crisis. So it's not in a position to, in, to give as much time to the fight against ISIS. And it has claimed to have made some arrests of ISIS leaders. It has, it has carried out some, some counterterrorism uh, offensives against ISIS, but they've been really nasty. They've used scorched earth tactics. Uh, they've killed a lot of civilians and they've basically alienated local communities, which at the end of the day is only going to help which is only going to help ISIS, which is sort of hard to believe. Yeah. It's hard to imagine ISIS benefiting from anything in this regard where communities are affected. But uh, yes, yeah, but so it's the, the exact to interrupt. That's that is the exact same dynamic that the United States faced: brutal tactics, uh, radicalizing local communities, redounding. This is the counterinsurgency model. It redounds against the government or the occupier, the force needed to suppress the insurgency. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in that sense, ISIS is benefiting in ways that the Taliban used to benefit from, right? I mean, the Taliban used to go into rural areas and deliver this argument that, you know, we could do better. You know, the Afghan, the government's not protecting you. It's allied with these invading forces. We could do better. And now ISIS could could say, well, look, you know, the Taliban's in government and they're doing these terrible things. Um, so indeed, it is it is a conundrum. I don't think the Taliban is in a position to eliminate the ISIS threat. I don't think, and especially because it can't operate air power, at least not yet. And as I said before, airstrikes have been a major um, tactic used to keep the threat of ISIS of, of ISIS at bay in Afghanistan. All the Taliban can do is use uh, ground operations. And unless someone teaches it how to operate all this air power that it inherited from the, the Afghan military and anything it may have seized from departing Af uh, NATO forces, that's going to be a big disadvantage for the Taliban. We've always been told that this is at heart an ideological battle and you can't defeat an ideology on the battlefield. Although I look at what the United States did to degrade ISIS's power, it seems like that's more effective than trying to win an argument with ISIS in chat rooms. So how does this actually play out in Afghanistan? Do you think that there will be efforts to counteract their arguments or more, it will be just military battles. And if you can degrade them militarily, you prove to the people who are either on the fence or forced to convert at the point of a sword that ISIS-K is not the path forward for better lives. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it sort of reminds one of the, the famous saying that uh, you can, you can, it's easy to kill terrorists, but it's a lot hard to kill the ideologies that drive them and sustain them. And that's no that's no difference here. It's tough with ISIS because ISIS, you know, since it's a particularly uh, maximalist and, and, and nasty group ideologically, 
you can't reason with them. And I think that the, the, real, the real focus should be doing, trying to figure out ways to prevent ISIS from being able to recruit more folks to its cause. I think it's impossible to, to talk or negotiate with, with ISIS members themselves. Uh, and that's not the case with a group like the Taliban. And we, we saw, of course, that the U.S. government negotiated a deal with the Taliban and it continues to engage with the Taliban now, even though it hasn't formally recognized the Taliban regime. But I think that the challenge, uh, I guess, for the Taliban, but for the, Af- for the international community more broadly, is to try to figure out how to affect changes in the environment in Afghanistan so that ISIS is not in a position to be able to recruit folks, which has been able to do. So the trick there the, the challenge is to change the environment so that they can't recruit as easily. And I think a first step has to be to somehow ease this terrible, terrible economic crisis in Afghanistan, which has made so many people so desperate and in many cases angry, angry enough that they're willing to join a group as horrific as, as ISIS. So I think that has to be that has to be the objective. Given that ISIS is the alternative, is the international community now in a place where They've got to want the Taliban to succeed because that's stability. And that's, you know, if you have any commitment to human rights, that seems to be a stronger path than allowing ISIS to run rampant. Yes, ideally, that would be the the way in which the international community would want to think about this. But I think for the for many countries in the West and certainly the United States, uh, there's increasing um, concern about the Taliban because since the Taliban took power and especially over the last few months, it's essentially brought back the nastiest retrogressive policies that it had in place when it was in power in the late 90s. Right. You know, these promises to educate women have been walked back. It's Sharia law all over again. But exactly. But, you know, as bad as that is, certainly I think that's perceived as as a better alternative than having ISIS uh, controlling the country, which is not realistic. ISIS is not strong enough to do that in Afghanistan. But, you know, there had been some some speculation that the U.S. government had looked into the possibility of forming some type of informal agreement with the Taliban in which they could partner to to, a counterterrorism arrangement to go after ISIS. K. Nothing has come of that. I really think just because of mistrust factors and also the reality is that the, you know the, you have several um, leaders of the Haqqani network, which is the most one of brutal factions of the Taliban that have leadership positions in the Taliban regime. And so I think for, for the U.S. government, the idea of partnering with the Haqqani network, partnering with the very yeah. folks that had killed U.S. troops for years, it just wasn't going to, wasn't going to fly. Um, but yeah, I think that theoretically, one of the, the, the remaining U.S. goals in Afghanistan is to, to develop a what so-called over-the-horizon counterterrorism capacity that would allow it to manage and target uh, the threat of ISIS in Afghanistan, even from outside the country. But there hasn't been much headway uh, with that yet. Yeah. If I were a U.S. military planner, I would be sympathetic to the idea that it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to see Afghanistan as a country a little bit bloodied. You don't want that to get out of control, but you probably can't control it. So maybe there's either uh, rationally or from an emotional level, the sense of good is your just desserts. Mm. Well, (laughs) Afghanistan is Afghans have experienced or had experienced war for 40 years. Right. I mean, the country was ever since the Soviets entered in 1979. It set this this horrible period where where it was basically there was some type of war, whether, you know, occupation, anti-insurgency, civil war uh, and so on for many years. So uh, Afghans uh, really deserve a break and they're not getting it because of these, these terrorist attacks. 
but also because of the economic crisis, which is which is the worst thing. So, you know, I, I'm not trying to defend the Taliban here. I'm talking more broadly about the Afghan people on the whole. They really deserve a break, but it's just they're they're not getting it. And that's just so tragic. Okay. Now the last question, and certainly the one with the lowest stakes, but ISIS is the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Sometimes they're called ISIL, Islamic State of the Levant, which correlates to Iraq and Syria. But ISIS-K, as we say, the K is a a Khorasan province, Khorasan province. So isn't this a little bit of a Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim type situation (laughs) that the K is not part of the original, I don't know, charter of the ISIS name itself? Yeah, you're right. And that's why ISIS-K is redundant, uh, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. what, or maybe contradictory. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. I, I think that uh, it's it's more appropriate to refer to it, to, to it as, as ISK, Islamic State Khorasan, uh, just because that's more, that's more accurate. But, you know, as I had said at the start, uh, Islamic State Khorasan is a formal part of ISIS, broadly speaking. It's not just a free rider that's taken on the brand of ISIS, which some militant right. groups have done. So, so yeah, you're right. The, the naming and the acronyms get a little tricky. At any rate, uh, yeah, so I try to call it Islamic State Khorasan, uh, but many others, many media outlets uh, say ISIS-K. So in the grand scheme of things, uh, I think that, um, yeah, the, uh, the, I, the second IS in ISIS is, 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 is redundant if you, if you use the term ISIS-K. I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. Right. I mean, that's at least something we could solve, unlike all of this other situation that you've laid out. Right. If only everything could be as, e- as easy as that. Yes. <laughs> Michael Kugelman is the deputy director of the Asia Program and senior associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel, specifically, it is an antwentig from the old English word for 21, wherein we check up on if I've made any mistakes and I get in touch with you, the listener, the Twitterer, maybe even the Redditor. We'll get to that. But first, let me get to this. I did say the Ukraine when I, of course, meant a Ukraine or an Ukraine. No, I just meant Ukraine. I know that when it was a region, it was the Ukraine. Now it is Ukraine. It's sort of like Congo. First it was Congo. Then it was the Congo. But it became a country and was Congo. Although I should say the official name is the, or the, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is the equivalent, linguistically, of the United States of America, which is sometimes called America, and also sometimes called the United States, which is like calling the Congo the Democratic Republic, which is weird because it isn't. But then again, we aren't. Many people corrected me because I called Medhi Hassan Ali Hassan. My apologies to the MSNBC and Peacock journalist. Got a very good note from Phil Reed. Reed writes, hi, Mike. I teach ESL at the Defensive Language Institute here in San Antonio. If silence is violence, the Defensive Language Institute is the cure. 
No, he didn't say that. I did. Phil continues, Rory is dealing with gerunds with our most advanced students who are all foreign military. I found your discussion on April 15th interesting. That was the last N twin tig. But you didn't mention an aspect that we have to continually help our students understand. When two nouns work together to describe one thing, such as lawnmower, the stress is on the first noun. It is. See how I said it? Lawnmower. When there's a modifier before the noun, the stress is always on the noun, not the modifier. That's heard in your example of swimming pool. We put the stress on swimming and not pool. It's not a swimming pool. Now, I personally, breaking from the letter for a second, can think of a couple counterexamples. Like, isn't it a killer whale, not a killer whale? Similarly, it's a spelling B and a quilting B, a lowercase b, but it's a killer bee. I'm not sure why. And don't get me started on the Empire State Building, which everyone knows and says Empire State Building should be the Empire State Building. It is not a building owned by the state or a building of the state. It is not a government building. It is a building that is erected to and testament to the greatness of the Empire State. But Phil Reed continues. It gets more confusing with things like moving truck. If I put the stress on the first word, I'm talking about a truck for moving furniture, a moving truck. If I put the truck or the stress on the second word, I'm talking about a truck that is moving. I saw the moving truck. I saw the moving truck. It changes depending on the stress. I love that. And I would add that if you're overcome with emotion by the song Tupelo Honey or Moondance, he's a moving van. We then move into the portion of the show that earns the language warning, as Phil writes. For your example of the pundit, we would know if we were modifying her or saying what she offers opinions about by the stress you use when talking about her. I was talking about someone who came on the show, who was an expert on sex, and she was a fucking pundit. Or was she a fucking pundit? It really depends, Phil says, on where you put the stress. Beautiful insight. And to that, I say, holy shit. Unless we're talking about a piece of excrement from an actual saint, in which case it would be a holy shit. And by the way, a holy shit happens all the time, usually emanates from the throne of St. Peter. No, that's just a papal bull. Okay, thank you, Phil. I will now climb out of that particular sacrilegious cesspool by quoting G. German on Twitter. In the realm of offensive language, he noted that today's offensive language warning, which I know is pre-recorded, was technically insufficient. It warned about four, six, and eight-letter words. But then, what did I talk about on the show? Rat-fucked, which is a nine-letter word. Tisk tisk. Indeed. Thanks for limiting to two tisks. I deserve more. Now, I mentioned Redditors. We have this new Reddit initiative that we're getting started. Go to reddit slash r slash the gist. One thing that got the gist Redditors uh, kind of excited was I was talking about other Redditors and I was talking about a story where a teacher in San Francisco used a bowl of cotton to illustrate how hard it was to pick the crop. And I said that everyone on the Reddit group Bay Area did not find any fault with the teacher. And I said, you know, they all seem like uh, normal people. But a moderator, or as he calls himself, a quasi-moderator of R San Francisco told me I should be highly cautious about using R Bay Area as a proxy. The San Francisco sub has much more serious moderation, like our listener, the quasi-moderator, and has regular posts from journalists. The Bay Area sub, much more laissez-faire, stomping grounds for uh, disproportionately conservatives in the area. And then someone else on Reddit, another 
gist Redditor said, now, let me, let me orient you how Reddits of the San Francisco area go. If you want a real sense of crime, heavy on the crime, that's your R Bay area. If you want to feel pretty good about San Francisco, then you go to R slash SF. If you want to stuff your fingers in your ears or remained in fantasy land, R slash Oakland is for you. It's great that within one corner of the internet, you can get several silos depending on your reality. Thank God. I also want to disclose the results of our Twitter poll. I started using what I wanted. I do sometimes want to ask the audience, what do you think? And an inefficient way is to just say it on the air and then hope feedback trickles in via email or mikepesca.com. So why not use Reddit? And, you know, it's, it's in its germinal stages, but it seems to be working. Will Elon let Trump back on Twitter? I was wondering what the audience, you, the audience, thought, or you, the percentage of the audience that's on Reddit. And uh, like I thought, it was overwhelming. 21 said yes, 2 said no. So if you're on Reddit or thinking of going to Reddit, we're there too. We're at reddit slash r slash the gist. And now we come to that prestigious position called the lobstar of the Antan Twig, given to our finest emailer, Twitterer. We used to do Facebook, now it's Reddit. Anyone who interacts with us and me specifically, but us in general. Andre Pagliarini was one of the many people who told me about the Mehdi Hassan thing. He's Brazilian. He knows Brazilian, he knows Portuguese, he knows of the ways of Brazil and the ways of speaking. So I reached out to him and said, by the way, Andre, thank you for the correction, but you know how I always say um peru de peru do peru? Does that strike you as actually, uh, you know, meaningful to someone who speaks Portuguese? And he told me, because I asked, no, you're doing it horribly. So I said, all right, well, I have an interest in doing it better. Uh, how do you propose I say those words? And he sent me this. Hey, Mike, like I said, big fan over here. Uh, it occurred to me that it depends a little bit if you're speaking, of course, in Portuguese from Portugal or Portuguese from Brazil, uh, which is my Portuguese. It's the Portuguese of most people who speak Portuguese. It's Brazilian Portuguese. So it would be like this. Um Peru, de Peru, do Peru. Um Peru, de Peru, do Peru. The D-E especially is G, like the letter G in English. Um Peru, G Peru, do Peru. Okay. And that will lead to a major announcement. Wait for it at the end of the show. I think you know what it's going to be. But this, a sub-announcement, is that Andre Pagliarini, you have contributed a lopstar-worthy correction to me, one that I wanted, one that I could grow from. The multimedia component solidified it, as they say in Campo Grande, or Porto Alegre, from the great field to the cheerful harbor, you are the lobstar of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is commander of the faithful for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And now our major announcement. As I say, um peru, ji peru, du peru. Thanks for listening.